Welcome to Radio Survivor, the sound of strong communities. My name is Paul Reesmanel, and I am one half of your uh, hosting and production team. Hi, Eric Klein here, other half. And on the line from San Francisco with us is Jennifer Waits. Hello, glad to be here. Glad you could join us uh, for today's show. And uh, we want to dig in a little bit to some college radio stuff, which is uh, what you often bring to the party here, Jennifer. And then we'll also talk a little bit about something that happened in the low-power FM world uh, that's interesting for a lot of different reasons and really demonstrates another aspect of people coming together uh, as a community, really. Even though we had a bunch of people who were competing for one frequency, uh, due to really heroic efforts on the part of some volunteers, they were able to actually uh, grow the number of stations that will go on the air in one market rather than it be a, a zero-sum game. So we'll be talking about that a little bit later in the show. Um, but first, Jennifer, uh, you you were sort of, uh, let's say, tweaked a little bit because um, you just uh, heard a podcast and some reporting on station WTBU. And maybe you could tell us a little bit about what happened to that station. You did report on it a few weeks ago. Yeah. Um, so WTBU at Boston University, unfortunately, had this really horrible fire. And they're now off the air because the studios were destroyed. So um, there was a great podcast episode where the advisor to that station um, talks about not only the fire and how they're recovering from it, but also a bit of WTBU's illustrious history. Um, and it's it's a really interesting segment. It's on the Billboard Chartbeat podcast, and they talk a lot about Howard Stern, who is an early WTBU DJ. Um, and some of the things lost in the fire or some of the things damaged in the fire include artifacts like a letter that he had written to them, which they're in the process of preserving. Um, but when she was talking about some of the history, she mentioned that WTBU was the first college radio station to be webcast mm-hmm. uh, with, with a launch on Halloween in 1999. And um, that that gave me pause because <laughs> as a college radio historian, I know, I mean, I know off the top of my head that in 1994, there were numerous college radio stations that started web streaming. And in fact, they were some of the first radio stations of any type to start web streaming in 1994. So I, I went down the rabbit hole of research and, and I'm not, I'm not tweaked that that was said, but it's, <laughs> it's, it's just sort of an indication that, uh, that often, I mean, and it happens all the time. It's not just college radio stations. All the time, you'll hear claims that something is the first, and and as as a writer, as a journalist, I tend to not repeat that information unless I find satisfactory proof. So I'm always I'm always investigating first claims, particularly when they come to college radio. Yeah. It's clearly because, it's clearly not one of your pet peeves because that's that's probably too strong of a word, but, <laughs> but it is a hobby of yours. Well, I I had a very amazing high school journalism teacher, and um, that's probably one of the things that I learned from him was you know you need to fact check and double check things. So I I'm very careful about that. So and then you know combine that sort of 
journalistic integrity with my interest in college radio history and, uh, you know, <laughs> it becomes a hot button issue, I guess, sure. whatever. I wonder if it's because of uh, college radio history being a little um, undernourished, underwatered, uh, if it were a garden, uh, that so many people uh, accidentally tend to make such grandiose claims about about uh, being the first this and the first that. I mean, because we've covered this on uh, the radio survivor, uh, the radio survivor podcast in the past. We've we've talked about the first all women's college on the radio, and we've talked about uh, there's other firsts that you've you've helped yeah. me understand. Uh, but just the slippery. first uh, college station in general. There right. are many right. claimants to that throne. Yeah, and those range from stations from the 1920s to the 1940s. <laughs> you know, as as with um, high school radio stations, there are stations in the 20s and in the 40s that claim to be the first. And <laughs> and I mean, and honestly, Silos. I know honestly, it's really hard to actually figure out who is the first in all of these categories because college radio history, high school radio history is not well documented at all, and that's why it's an important mission for me, um, you know, to get every station to start working on that because we really don't have a great deal of accuracy. And then in the early days of licensed radio stations, you know, we don't have, we don't necessarily have great records either. Um, and, and also there are a lot of ways of defining what first is. So, I mean, for webcasting, that was relatively recent, so we should be able to pinpoint that, but be surprised. Well, can you can you come up with any stations? Uh, can you name any stations that were definitely already streaming as of 1999? Oh yeah. Um, so two of the stations that, well, the station that really um, makes the strongest argument for being first is WXYC at University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill, and they started web streaming in 1994, and very soon after, REC at Georgia Tech started streaming also in 1994. Um, wow. Do you, do you know the story? Cause like I, there's, there's not a whole lot of internet back then. Yeah. I mean, there WXYC has a pretty um, comprehensive piece on their website about it. And in fact, they celebrated um, one of the anniversaries of web streaming. And so they documented and they, and they wrote about competing claims for the first and, and had specific dates mentioned. Um, so that's that's pretty interesting. And and rec at Georgia Tech. Um, I mean, I think both stations students were really behind it. And students are often mm, the of folks course. who are at the forefront of technology. Um, you know, yeah. this is why I think it's important. Like college radio has has made great contributions technologically, including the beginnings of web streaming. Right, exactly. And, and often because uh, the resources to experiment you know, were there at universities as well as, especially at that time, uh, better access to the internet. It was pretty common at that point for uh, students to often have much better, college students that is, have much better access to the internet than most people did anywhere else, including at home or at work, uh, because of the, because the internet really uh, first, of course, was was for military applications, but very quickly thereafter became for uh, research applications, which meant universities and colleges we're going online. In just regard to that, yeah. to that first uh, internet broadcast kind of uh, title, I remember that there was a station WEBX, which went on the air in Tuscola, Illinois, which is you might call it a suburb of Champaign-Urbana, Illinois, where I lived at the time. 
Um, it's a commercial station, a small commercial station. And when they went on the air FM, uh, in 1995, they also went on the air full-time streaming and, you know, were amongst the very first commercial stations to have a full-time uh, stream on the internet. They made a big deal of it. And that's why they called themselves WEBX web. Right. Huh. You know, and that's and, amazing. And the funny thing is that their, their first studios were right next door to WEFT, the community radio station in Champaign-Urbana. And wow. And the uh, one of the founders of the station uh, went on to become the program director of the public radio station in Champaign-Urbana, uh, WILLL. The station uh, exi- the, the, the frequency exists, but it hasn't been that format. It was an adult album alternative format. And again, an early uh, version of of that is a commercial format at the time. But and we all thought it was uh, a really amazing thing. And Champaign-Urbana is a fairly connected town because it's a college town, home to the University of Illinois. So uh, although I you know only had dial-up at home at that time. Uh, certainly uh, at the university one one could tune in and I did, but I, I don't remember it being high fidelity. <laughs> I do recall all of that streaming at that time being uh, just uh, slightly better, if at all, than say AM radio. That's really innovative um, because I, I feel like not many commercial radio, st- the commercial radio stations were definitely behind as far as getting on the web. Even, even their websites, I think lagged behind a lot of college radio stations so to have a commercial station that was on the web from the beginning is pretty interesting. Yeah, I mean, and just one other little trivia, uh, a little bit more trivia from that time. We may remember the words real audio or real player, right, which is one of the dominant platforms for streaming in the 1990s. Uh, the company, which became Real Networks, uh, originally was called Progressive Networks. And one of the things that the company tried to do was to provide – uh, streaming services for progressive political content. And so uh, Democracy Now!, for instance, which uh, first went on the air, I believe, in 1996, uh, got free streaming from progressive networks at that time, as did shows like Counterspin, which is a media criticism show produced by Fairness uh, and Inaccuracy, inaccuracy in Reporting, FAIR. Uh, they hosted a lot of these things on their website. Uh, they would change their name later on to Real Networks and and now really do not play in the streaming business at all. But uh, that was sort of the uh, kind of the early days, again, the sort of mid-90s days when, when streaming on the web was new. Most people had dial-ups. So that meant you had to type your phone line if you wanted to listen to internet radio or you were a nerd like me and you got a second phone line just to uh just to be on just the internet um you know and there was no such thing really to speak of in, in terms of mobile broadband or listening on a phone uh, in that way yeah it was a different world and uh, you were talking about just how people didn't really have internet and i remember i was working at a company in 1994. And around that time, we were begging to get email accounts, you know, just like, we, th- we think it's important to have email, you know, this is something that is really going to catch on. <laughs> so those were early days, for sure. Um, but absolutely. And I think it's really important that 
Jennifer, that you are doing this work, this investigative work, and then documenting it, right? Uh, because, you know, it's not only that you're looking into it, but you're publishing your results. And I really appreciate that you are so upfront and so honest about what you do know and what you don't know. And you definitely call on listeners and readers to help us correct a record or supplement the record. And, and we certainly, you, you maintain a page, which I'd like to call people to um, over at the Radio Survivor website. If you click on the About tab, learn about tab up at the top, you can learn about college radio. And in fact, Jennifer answers a lot of these questions, such as what was the first college radio station on the air? And you, you take up the issue and you note that there's not a definitive answer, but you, uh, you give all that you know about uh, the particular cases that you've investigated. Yeah. And it's endless. You know, I think I, I could spend years researching and going into archives, um, you know, and some of this started from researching radio at Haverford College, where I went to my undergraduate, where I um, got my undergraduate degree, and finding out years later that a radio station there was launched in 1923. And and the only way you would really know about that is if you were reading Haverford publications or looking in the Haverford archives. So there are plenty more stories like that that I have not encountered. So... It's, it's just, it's not easy to find. There's no, there's no one clearinghouse for college radio history. So. Well, we're creating that. Yes. <laughs> we are creating stab. that. <laughs> and, and certainly uh, listeners, if you know of uh, an early first, whether it's first online station, first uh, college station to go on the air, maybe first at a region or some other great first, or, or you have a question about it. Don't hesitate to drop us an email, send it to podcast at radiosurvivor.com. And I do encourage you to take a look at our website uh, where we report on these things and try to uh, share as much knowledge as we can. And of course, we'll put a links to so many things we just mentioned in our show notes, which is at radiosurvivor.com slash podcast. And um, yeah, next, I really, I really want to share this story because I think it's, it's an important one. And so as a little bit of background here, you know, Low power FM stations are going on the air right now. And these all come from a licensing window that happened at the end of 2013. This was an opportunity, the second ever in U.S. history, where nonprofit groups could apply to have a low power FM radio license in their community. A low power FM license authorizes you to use 100 watts of power, typically just a couple mile broadcast radius, at the idea that these would be hyper local community non commercial radio stations. There were thousands and thousands of applications. And thousands have been approved. And it's something which we've been charting every single week just about since that time. I counted uh, well over 100 individual reports that we have put out, almost about 130, every week documenting uh, all the different things that have happened around this from the stations that are going on the air to controversies, uh, you know, to uh, various battles that have happened. And one of the things that happens in this process is that in many cases, multiple people, multiple groups applied for a single frequency. So in any given city, uh, there may only be a few frequencies available that that are open on the dial for low power FM. And in some metroplexes, it gets really, really difficult because there are already so many stations on the air, so, already so densely populated. So the biggest group where there was competition was in Los Angeles, where there were, let me make sure I get my facts right, 32 applicants, 
vying for 101.5 FM, broadcasting in and around downtown Los Angeles. That's a big so deal. These groups may not have been in downtown Los Angeles proper, but they had a signal that basically overlaps all around that area. And the thing is, of course, really only one group can get the license, right? And there is a provision with Low Power FM that exists in no other service where groups may share a frequency. And basically, they're expected to come up with a time-sharing agreement that's roughly equal. So you will see situations in which two stations share a frequency, sometimes three. It gets more to be more than that. It gets it gets to be a little complicated. Maybe it gets daytime difficult. and nighttime Yeah, stations. it gets difficult for people to follow. But 32-way tie... <laughs> would have been very difficult. Now, as it turns out, the FCC has a grading schema where uh, you basically get points on your application based upon your ability to fulfill certain requirements. Certain requirements happen to be having a local studio. Uh, certain requirements are guaranteeing to air so much local programming in a week. Um, points are given for being associated with uh, a uh, native tribe. Um, and a number of other things. Who's the decider? In the, this? Oh, the FCC. I mean, basically, you elect on your application, we think we deserve this point, and you submit your uh, your evidence, basically, whatever. Uh, and, any, if, and, and the FCC doesn't do too much investigation. If it looks legit, they give you the point. Is that opaque bureaucracy? It is opaque. Is the, no, it's completely transparent. So you, you can you can meet the person who's deciding and, and no, lobby no. them? I mean, you Are could. There trials? But is there trials? No, 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 no. It's pretty much a, a bureaucratic prop process, right, where they look at the applications, but it'll be published. Like, it's all accessible to the public, and you can see there are these groups, and this one has four points, and this one has three points, and this one has two right, points. so 32 Los Angeles-based nonprofits yeah. fighting so it out. And so there was a winnowing. Some uh, applicants were dismissed because they simply just weren't qualified. Uh, some folks withdrew. Uh, and so eventually, by about a year ago, that was winnowed down to 18 applicants, still making it the largest group in the country. I wish we could have done, like, a Radio Survivor uh, reality show. Yeah, right. <laughs> follow these guys around oh for a year. But that's still a lot. And and here's the here's the issue though. That's just one frequency. Yeah. So think and and there was so many applicants in those 18 who were basically tied for points. Yeah. I imagine. All battling for one frequency. But in there is the ability in this process once the FCC has said, "Look, you're a legitimate applicant." You know, and so you you are otherwise pretty much qualified. The FCC wants groups to work it out. Hmm. So the FCC definitely prefers groups to work out their own timesharing agreements, but will also accept modifications on an application. So if you look at so you, you I mean the, the the problem with the application process is that you don't know who else is going to apply, right? And you apply for the frequency, but you don't just say, I want 101.5 in Los Angeles. You say, I want to broadcast from this specific location at 101.5. And then the FCC figures out, well, all these uh, applica applications uh, for stations would interfere with each other, so they're mutually exclusive. But you could go to the FCC and say, well... We did some re you know, we looked at the engineering again and we found if we move, you know, five miles to the northwest, oh. we would no longer be in competition with anybody. They could both have it. Right. But that requires twenty four hours a day. That requires engineering expertise. Mm -hmm. And and part of the point of LPFM is that you shouldn't need very much to get on the air. You need help. And so there's a group called Common Frequency 
and they are a non-profit group that specifically helps uh, low-power FM stations get on the air, um, and they lent an extreme amount of effort to many applicants for this 101.5 to help them if they were willing to be helped, because that's another part of it, to <laughs> to either creatively, creatively move their application which means, you know, it's not as simple as saying, oh, well, just throwing a dart, you know, uh, at the map because you have to go get a actual assurance from a tower owner or landowner that you can set your transmitter there. Sure. So it's a multi-step process. But they went down boots on the ground to work with these applicants to help some of them move, to help others find maybe a uh, a partner so they would split the airtime, but where that partnership would make sense. So if they're like two Christian broadcasters, it would make sense for them to work together maybe differently than the film society and, and, and an evangelical Christian group. So to find these partnerships and to make this work out better. How wonderful. It's amazing. What a radio story. So as a result now, and, and most of this has been kind of worked out, there's going to be at least four groups – a minimum of four groups who will be broadcasting on 101.5. Separate stations. But as separate stations, not timeshares, mm -hmm. because they're moved around. Some you know, have moved to the east, into the, uh, into the San Fernando Valley. Some have moved north just enough so that uh, they, they will not interfere. So that's great. In other cases, um, they found new timesharing agreements so they could move to new frequencies. Oh, okay. Um, they even got one group. That was on ninety nine point one FM uh, to actually uh, move and share time with another group on one hundred one point five FM to allow one of the one hundred one point five FM groups to move to ninety nine point one. So, I uh, just an amazing amount of work went into this, um, and it's taken nearly two years to pull it off. But why this stands out to me is that now we've gone from there being. 32 applicants for one frequency to now there being at least five, if not six new stations where there might have only been one, all community radio, all low power FM, which leaves only just seven groups now still left in the group in, uh, competing for that 101.5. But there still may be uh, some more creative uh, approaches yet. And, and kudos also go to the FCC. Because this, the FCC has to approve of all of these arrangements. And it goes to show that, you know, often I think that the Federal Communications Commission gets a little vilified or treated like it's a sort of a useless bureaucracy. Someone's got to be the bad guy in a story. Exactly. But it shows how the FCC's Media Bureau is an advocate for low-power FM in, what, in helping to, to see these things through, in, you know, and not simply just sort of putting down the gavel saying, time's up. And you all figure it out, but being willing to work with uh, Common Frequency and these various stations to put them on the air and to end up with a net plus of of uh, community radio stations that would that would not have otherwise exist. And then big kudos go to uh, Clay Leander, who is the uh, president of Common Frequency, because I know he particularly was on the ground uh, working on this, uh, and he certainly tried to keep us abreast of some of the, these movements, but, uh, uh, we were able to report on that in this most recent low power FM watch, which was this past Thursday. But I want to really share that because I think it's an example of, of real community, like multiple stations who were otherwise in competition, seeing the light 
of how they could all compromise a little bit to create tremendously more community serving radio rather than less because it was a zero sum game. So a big kudos to everybody in Los Angeles there. And it's amazing. And also if you look back at this whole process for the new LPFM window, common frequency, um, because of them, we were able to have LPFM in urban areas because originally that was looking like it was going to be an impossibility and common frequency submitted comments to the FCC after doing their own engineering studies to show that more LPFMs could be squeezed into urban areas. So they've really done a huge amount of work, which now we're seeing the results of that. Absolutely. Yes. They were, they were one of the, the leaders um, and they worked alongside in cooperation with folks like the Prometheus Radio Project and Rec Networks um, in helping to make that engineering case. Right. So not just a rhetorical case, but showing in hardcore numbers that uh, that the uh, spacing requirements for low power FM could be turned back to what they originally were in 2000 um, rather than sort of the more restrictive version that the Congress imposed uh, in 2001. So great work uh, and all in all in the spirit of community. It's it's been a real really fantastic to watch this and to sort of have this ringside seat that we've had to see the single greatest expansion of community radio in U.S. history. And I, I, I might argue it might even be the single greatest expansion of community radio in history with regard to the number of stations going on the air in such a short amount of time. It's truly spectacular. Um, it is. I mean, it, it, I say over and over, it's like a a radio renaissance. And, and then when I'm out, I visited a number of these brand new LPFM stations in various stages of development. And it's, you could just, it's exciting. Um, you can feel the energy and it's kind of unbelievable, you know, because for so many years, people thought that getting a new radio license was an impossibility. Yeah, especially uh, especially in urban areas, right? Especially where, for the most part, all frequencies were taken. And so it means you're buying an existing frequency. And so buying a commercial frequency could be millions of dollars. But even buying a non-commercial frequency in a major market can be millions of dollars because uh, that is the market value. So this has a, been a, just a tremendous opportunity. And uh, one thing I wanted to alert our listeners to uh, is that this – this last uh, low power FM watch uh, that we published will be our last weekly version of this. Um, and the reason is that the news is slow to a trickle for the most part. Um, and, you know, so we're not seeing so many, so many licenses. How many weeks approved. did it run in a row? And not in a row. It ran about 130 weeks. So we, we missed, you know, we missed a week or two here for holidays. Um, but for the most part, it ran about 130 weeks uh, with with very rarely more than one week off in that of interim. Jennifer and you, Paul, uh, taking turns yeah, on that We split column. the load on that. Yeah. So, Jennifer, what what's what's low power FM watch taught you? Oh, so much. I mean, it's been it's been fascinating, um, especially at the very beginning, kind of watching the new stations getting their uh, construction permits um, those early days, it was kind of unbelievable seeing it was, I don't know. It was almost like watching a ticker or, um, you know, because we've been waiting so long to find out the results and um, 
And it was just sort of an embarrassment of riches to see all the new stations that were getting approved. So it's, it's been great. And, and I've enjoyed tracking all of the college radio stations that applied and have been getting their licenses too, which is truly astonishing as well. Yeah. Cause that might not have, am I uh, speaking out of turn when I say like, I didn't, I didn't realize that that was one of the intentions of low power FM, the movement to, to allow a growth of college radio. It seemed like it oh, was. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, there are plenty of college radio stations and high school radio stations that took advantage of the low power FM opportunity and, College radio groups were informing their members about the opportunity. So it was definitely something that people were looking at. And, you know, some of the stations that lost their FM licenses or terrestrial access in general, um, many of those stations applied for low power FM licenses. Um, You know, stations that had been on terrestrial radio and really wanted to get back on the air. So, like uh, KTRU at Rice University. They were awarded an LPFM license, um, and they've started broadcasting. And they had formerly had a full power FM license in Houston. And the FCC set up the rules to specifically promote uh, student-run stations. So in general, low-power FM stations uh, may not be co-owned, meaning – a group may have a low-power FM station and no other stations. However, universities, colleges, and schools are specifically accepted from that rule. So if they have, like, say, an NPR affiliate, a full-power NPR affiliate, they are still permitted to have a student-run low-power yeah. FM, provided that the low-power FM is student-run. Oh, so it was specifically to give space to students. Yeah, amongst, yeah, yeah. amongst the many things. That's something it, it wasn't that, merely like uh, delights a, a, me. Yeah, not merely a, a sort of unintended consequence, but an intended consequence. So what did you learn from 26-odd columns of low-power FM watchball? I looked into so many applications – you know, I looked deeper than I ever had before, and it was so interesting <laughs> to see all the different styles of radio that people were proposing. So there's a sort of similarity in some cases. They, you know, if you think of your, your a community radio station that's been around 20, 25 years, a legacy station, programming looked a lot like that, you know, where we're going to have some public affairs shows, we're going to have some music shows and such. But every so often, uh, something would jump out at you. Uh, so, uh, for instance, in Fort Wayne, Indiana, the local public library system applied for and received a low power FM license and wants to knit that community radio in with its programming, like it's, it's programming as a library and, and sort of take that access, uh, element to a different level. A lot of public access, Fort Wayne. yeah, a lot of public access TV stations, applied for low power FM licenses at, in, in some ways to complement what they do in the low power TV station, but also broaden their scope. And I thought that was really interesting. Um, and it seemed like there was many more kind of uh, these sorts of synergies happening this time around in the 2013 window than happened in the 2000 window, uh, you know, more than a decade before. And that was fascinating because we were documenting it week after week. And it's so funny there. If we go back, maybe I'll dig some out, uh, especially you, Jennifer and Matthew, it seemed like sometimes you would just pick out the funniest sounding names for stations <laughs> or, you know, or some that were really fascinating. You both seem to enjoy doing that, you know, finding out that some are going to uh, focus on very, very small and specialized uh, immigrant or ethnic communities, for instance. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was all over the map. Um, it was really fascinating or it is really fascinating. 
Um, you know, another thing that I found really interesting was noticing when noticing the sketchy applications and figuring out, you know, hey, I'm reading through this application and it sounds identical to this other one that I read. Um, you know, because there were definitely groups out there who were paying attention to that and noting when it seemed that applications might have been um, created by a larger group, although they were making it seem like there were a bunch of independent local applications. So it was, for me, reporting on it, it was interesting to see that detailed when I look through the specific applications. So, um, Right. I mean, because the rules are that a group may only apply for one station. You can't kind of play the odds. A group can't make 10 applications hoping to make one. They can apply for one. And what we noticed and many other uh, groups noticed is that you saw some applications that looked almost exactly alike, even down to like there was like Hispanic community radio of this city, of this city. And you started to look and they all sort of had the same uh, basic corporate structures and all coming from the same cities. And that prima facie looked like it's probably not legitimate. And many of those applications were dismissed, uh, some uh, for all sorts of other causes. They were sort of defective applications to begin with. They weren't very well done. Uh, but, you know, and, you know, the FCC can only do so much. And so groups, especially rec networks, uh, Michelle Bradley is is the uh, chief engineer there, uh, did a lot of work to bring the defective applications to the attention of the FCC to help groups who might have been in competition with these defective applications, help them point it out to the FCC so that not, and it's not for the sake of taking away, but to make sure that the license right. is going to go to an actual legitimate local community group. What are you guys going to look for in the low power FM community uh to 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 inspire you to write a new column as opposed to the the scheduling. Well, I mean, I'll definitely keep watching to see if there are new stations that are getting construction permits. So, you know, that's important. We'll report on that when that happens. Um, San Francisco is still undecided. So I'm. Well, there's just one. There's one. Uh, there's one group. I think. I don't think it's utterly undecided. Is it? Uh, well, yeah. There's one group that's undecided. Um, there were a few other groups that have been decided. Um, but one group that's had a bunch of bunch of applicants and legal actions. And so <laughs> I will be interested to see what's happening there. I, I bet I you I know what some of those people look like. Yeah, I personally haven't been writing much about it because I know too many of the players. So yeah, I, I don't feel like... Um, you know, it's it's hard. It's hard when you're in a community and you have, and I'm sure you both feel the same way in Portland. Um, you know, if you know people on all sides of something, sometimes it doesn't feel right to even write about it. Because, Especially in radio, yeah, yeah. I, you know, well, and 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 to me, the question has always been, you know, what about the controversy or the competition? is something which is intrinsically about the the issue of low power fm that is is this squabbling is this infighting or is there an issue at hand like you know so if there are legitimate uh and and sort of evidenced allegations of wrongdoing i think that deserves reportage um if it seems as though uh, in, in, on the positive side, people have come to very interesting or novel or, or uh, ways of working out 
a situation and creating resolution, I think that merits coverage. But when it often seems as though it's a lot and and people are able to file sort of uh, complaints against one another for all intents and purposes in the uh, in, in, in through FCC filings. And when I've read through them and if I see that it seems more like sour grapes or it, it seems very personal, uh, I don't I it, it that doesn't seem to me that that it merits our time and coverage because it may be salacious. It may be, you know, but it's more it's more real housewives than it is anything that that furthers the cause of community radio. More TMZ than, than yeah. times. Yeah. Well, and I think I think that's something that that all reporters have to think about um, when they're writing stories in general. And, you know, people send us stories, story ideas all the time. And and we have to use our own ethical gauges as to whether or not there's a story there. Absolutely. You know, because I, through this effort, what I've always wanted to be unabashedly is a cheerleader for great radio, which means also sometimes not being a cheerleader for terrible radio and often being critical of forces, especially to me, political, econ- political and economic forces that, that hurt good radio my other principle is I like to punch up, not down. So I'm not interested in piling on what may be a difficult situation for a particular station or even a few stations or, or some groups who are unfortunately caught in some sort of conflict over, over a particular frequency that they've all applied for. If there's a principle at hand, something that shows uh, sort of the, the, the real reasons and rationales for low power FM, I think we should report on it. And we'll certainly report on the resolution or, or what comes out of it. But to dig into the sort of backbiting that often happens doesn't seem to be too useful. But why we're also willing, and at least I'm willing to sort of really, really criticize examine, say, Cumulus Broadcasting, the number two uh, commercial broadcaster in the country because of the of the way they've done business and what that has done to radio. Uh, they're powerful. They're way more powerful than you or me, even with all the debt they carry. Uh, they can take it. I think piling on, though, any station that might have internal problems uh, that, that uh, sometimes leak out into the press or that we hear about via email, I'm less inclined to jump in unless, you know, there is there is something really material at stake rather than than what is often and it happens everywhere in organizations of all types, some sort of internal squabble. Yeah, I mean, unless it's part of, you know, when I wrote about the KUSF shutdown, I was writing about every twist and turn. So I probably covered every little conflict and detail. Um but that was more like a one-time thing where, you know, I don't know if that'll ever happen again, where I'm doing in-depth coverage about <laughs> one story for a lengthy amount of time. Well, because it's difficult. <laughs> it's difficult, um, but it was great. It was a great, it, you know, it was, um, it was interesting. I learned a lot about the FCC in the process as well. Um, yeah. and, it, and it's nice to have followed through and and to be reporting on a story for that long. So it was a great experience, but unfortunately we can't do that for every story. I wish, I mean, if we could do the in-depth reporting on things that are of real meaning and impact, of course I'd love to do that. We can't because to be completely frank, uh, we all do this as volunteers at this point. Uh, while we're very grateful for the folks who do contribute on a monthly basis to help pay our bills, it pretty much keeps us online. 
It keeps the podcast hosted. It makes sure that there's no uh, immediate threat to us having to take anything offline at any time. But it doesn't give us the extra time necessary, the, the real to do this sort of reporting, which would require taking away time from other income uh, generating activities. Um, you know, this is where I'll put in the pitch. If the more you can help us, the more we can do go to radiosurvivor.com slash support. If you can help us, uh, monthly that, that that's the best possible thing because then it's income we can sort of depend upon. But if even a one-time donation will help us do more, for instance, it would be great if we could go to the national federation of community broadcasters conference happening this, uh, this summer in Denver, Colorado, in particular, because they're, they're going to be hosting a low power FM summit. The community NFCB is doing amazing outreach, uh, really unprecedented with regard to that organization to try and help as many low power FM stations as they can. And it would be great for us to be on the ground there so that we can report and share that information and to further add to that kind of canon of history. But uh, that requires money and time. And uh, none of us has that resource at this moment. It simply isn't there. It's not remotely within the budget of a radio survivor and the money that comes in for us to be able to do that sort of thing. Um, You know, that is a boundary which we which we continually sort of crash into, even though we continue to move forward, even as other publications uh, that are volunteer efforts are folding up around us, uh, especially ones that have to do with radio. So any help you can give us is greatly appreciated. Go to RadioSurvivor.com slash support. We're celebrating our seventh birthday this year. Um, and again, I, I sit back and, and I don't want to be too self-congratulatory, but the fact that we filed 130 weekly reports on Low Power FM is unprecedented. I don't think any publication has done that and given this subject that level of continuing longitudinal coverage and and scrutiny and and documentation uh, we'd love to continue to do that and i think in terms of low power fm we will continue to report on important issues when uh when there is resolutions where uh new stations are able to overcome uh any sort of uh challenge um and i think we want to also continue to talk about the sustainability issue because i think that's going to it's important for low power fm and community radio in general to to help uh synthesize report on and make uh sort of make proposals for how stations can be sustainable how they can connect with their communities and continue to stay on the air and and not uh, find themselves uh challenged uh through any number of of common threats to, to nearly any community nonprofit. I will also continue to have field trip reports on low power FM stations. So I'm, I'm a bit backlogged at the moment, but I have a number in the queue as they say. So that will continue as well. You're approaching number 100, right? Of your station uh, tours. I am. Yes. Rapidly approaching station tour 100, which will be published soon. I have people, (laughs) Asking, when are you going to get those posted <laughs> soon? All right. Well, let's possibly. Yeah, let, let, let's coordinate that here with the podcast. That would be great. Yeah. Well, Jennifer, thank you so much for uh, joining us for this edition of Radio Survivor. And of course, um, your weekly college radio coverage is at radiosurvivor.com. And just click on college radio and you can read all the great stuff that Jennifer publishes every week. Yeah, thanks, Jennifer. Thanks. It's always great to be here with both of you. And we'd love to hear what you think, you listener. 
we appreciate every moment you spend with us. You got any comments or uh, do you have any uh, sort of tips for us? We'd love to hear about it. Send us an email, podcast at radiosurvivor.com. As well, if you would go to iTunes, if you use iTunes at all, we'd greatly appreciate it if you would click on some stars or leave a review. Rate us. It helps other people find the program and helps to grow the people who are aware of great radio. Yeah, go to iTunes, give us a rating, and in your review, tell us uh, what your favorite community radio station, past, present, or future has been. You don't have to write about Radio Survivor. Tell us about radio you love in the comments. That'll... That's two birds with one stone. That's a great idea. And, and, and think about the, the great part of that then is, is that people reading those reviews will be like, oh, wow, I didn't know about that really cool station. I got to check that out. That, that's a wonderful idea, Eric. Thanks so much for, uh, for suggesting it. And thank you for uh, being here once again. Oh, always a pleasure to podcast.